John, thank you for joining us for a, a quarantine edition uh, lounge episode. This you know, yeah. is an honor and a, and a lot of fun. So thank you. Well, thanks for the pleasant distraction, man. Yeah, it's a very, yeah. very weird, disorienting times for everybody. Musicians, very much included. Especially, uh, yeah, just for the uh, the loss of, of work and uh, well, and everyone's been stuck at home and then things are kind of opening up again and, and, and it's what what's okay yeah. what's not okay but not for us unfortunately yeah i don't know when we're going to get back to performing when are people going to want to gather in crowds of a thousand people or more in tight spaces i don't know man yeah. i don't know these guys i mean uh you know we could go down a dark tunnel here about the nature of the music business particularly the recording business and the record business and this is not this is just for me from my perspective not to be too gloomy about it, but it feels a little bit like another nail in the coffin of an already struggling business, trying to trying to remain viable as a way for musicians to make money and make a living, producers, engineers, sidemen, you name it, artists. Let's get the list, labels, you know. So 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 what do you do? Oh man. Well, I don't know. What do, what do I do personally? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, it might be a little out of my hands, I think. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, you know, but, you know, artists are compelled to create art. I mean, right. that's not going to stop. Whether artists can have viable livings on some level creating their art, I don't know. I mean, we're we're survivalists by nature. You know, human beings want to they want to survive. They want to thrive. You know, I don't know about from your perspective, but from mine, pretty much as soon as the pandemic started, it really seemed like there was a lot of energy and creative energy, sort of like, OK, well, how are we going to circumvent this? How are we going to make this work? How are we going to make something viable and compelling and make art? You know, in uh, that part of it, I think we're always amazing. The musicians are amazing and big open hearts and creative hearts and spirits. How you monetize it, not to be like too, uh, well, whatever. I mean, how you monetize it so that people can actually survive and put food on the table and buy their kids shoes and send them to school and stuff. That, that I'm not sure. It's complicated. But that's, you know? but that's a question that that must be answered because everyone has to pay their bills. And <laughs> yeah, no, it really, it, it's true, you know. Uh, uh, but it'd be more fun to talk about guitars. I'll give you some I'll easy it, ones. Things have been so bleak, uh, particularly up here in New York for the past week. It's, right. it's, and it takes a lot for me. Like, I'm fairly resilient. I've lived here my whole life. It takes a lot for me to go, holy cow, this is almost too much. So yeah. New, York, New York's taken a walloping this week. It really has. Yeah. But fingers crossed. It's an amazing city. Great survivalist instincts. So we'll see. Yeah. Okay. okay. We'll, we'll, we'll do a, a, a more fun question. Oh, we don't, you know, it's all good, yeah. man. We yeah. Anything, you know, it's anything you want to talk about so, making records you know yeah so one one of the things that i've been most curious about because since we uh last you know sat down and talked 
you have had the the privilege of of getting to tour with Ry Cooter. <laughs> yeah. So obviously he's you know a hero or, or someone that you know you've uh, you know looked up to, and then you've had the opportunity to actually tour with him because you're uh, you know he and, and your wife and, and you band leader have been uh, doing shows off and on over the last two years uh, that are dedicated to uh, to the music of Johnny Cash, which yeah. one that's unusual for your wife to be willing to do a tribute to her father. And two, you have, you know, and I, I'm guessing that part of it was due to Ry Cooter's involvement that she was willing to do that. Oh, completely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, there's probably a lot we could fill up the half an hour with this. But um, yeah, I mean, Ry uh, is definitely has been a major influence on me. You know, I've tried to wear the influence, hopefully in a creative way and not you know, mimic him or complex or anything. And I mean, uh, you know, I've said this before, uh, you know, it's not, I mean, I love rise. Good. Look, I'm a guitar geek. Like I'm sure all your listeners are, but it's not really about the guitar thing specifically for me. It's more about just his overwhelming sense of originality and musicality and how he approaches music and how he dissects mm. it and digests it and then spits it back out in his own way with his own imprint on it. But he takes this influence and that influence like that process and the art and craft involved in that are really the thing that has inspired me more than anything else. You know, I mean, in my own way, I hope that I've been able to do some version of that, of taking basically taking the things you love and your influences and how to use them without just mimicking them or, you know, just regurgitating cliches, but sort of creating something that inhabits and honors these traditions, but sort of opens the door for slightly new ways into it or whatever. So, I mean, and, you know, he's, he's just, uh, for me, he's a giant. You know, Rye's a giant. He really is. You know, there's a bunch, handful of musicians and artists that, for me, have had such a major imprint on me that it goes into DNA, you know. So, he's on that level. So, it was, yeah, it was really thrilling. Complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was complicated about it? Yeah. So uh, it was interesting because uh, I've got a large sort of music guitar-ish ego too and sort of trying to fit in and support and sort of find my way in there. And uh, it, So I loved – I mean personally I loved it. When, the, when it was good, it was really good. When it wasn't good, it was still really interesting. You know, sometimes it was, uh, it was pretty wild but it was always interesting. So there you go. Yeah. And the, I'll say one more thing. Yeah. So Roseanne would never have done this had it not been sort of Rye leading the charge. And he sort of came up with the idea. And I mean, I basically said, well, you know, you if you're ever going to do anything like this, this is probably the guy to do it with and probably the time to do it. So I'm glad we did it. It was fun. Yeah. Sure. How much more we're going to do. But there you go. Yeah. What what did you from from actually playing with Rye and being around him? what did you learn from him? What were some takeaways? It could be musically, it could be otherwise, because he seems like such a, uh, and again, I've never met him, but he seems like such a a, a, a lovable, get-off-my-lawn kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, he's he's a character. I mean, I don't want probably don't need to go any deeper than that. He's a character. I mean, uh, so it is interesting. I think, you know, his way into it, 
into his expressiveness or whatever it is he's trying to get at with the guitar or as a singer or anything is really incredible. It has a kind of elusive nature. It's very intuitive. It's not kind of coming from, and I say this with, I mean, it's not coming from an academic or, uh, I want to say, I mean, it's, this is important to choose the right words for me here. It's a very intuitive approach, right? And it's and it's exhilarating when it works and and to see it happen for me anyway for me because you know I'm such a huge fan. You know my tradition, um, because I came up it probably it, this is an interesting subject about where you come up and what's happening as you come up or learning how to be a guitar player, a musician, or interact with other musicians or get organized. You know. I've probably mentioned this even to you, you know, like New York, there's a kind of battlefield conditions mentality and a lot of music stuff that I had to deal with coming up, which is limited time, limited space, limited money. So you had to sort of get things done. And so I was wired and plus, you know, being a producer now for going into my fourth decade, it's sort of like I'm a little bit wired to sort of like, you know, what's the shortest route to organizing all these cats, you know, literal cats and, you know, metaphorical cats into getting it done. Um, so, and rise is a little more elliptical and a little more elusive and beautiful, but, but I totally get it because I have an element of that when I make records too. Like I try to keep the first few hours of interacting with any artist or any, anything I'm doing creatively, even if I'm writing songs, I try to get my sort of critical, organized music editor, musical director head out of the picture and just try to capture the intuitive on semi-unconscious response to the moment to see if you can create some real feeling. Well, Rise just full of that. He's like the real thing, man. I mean, to me, he's the real thing. It's like being... I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but it's like being with Howlin' Wolf or Muddy Waters to me or Doc Watson or, man, we're all run down a list of just people just deeply rooted, real, intuitive, brilliant, you know, non-academic players. And I guess the only other thing I would say is that Rise framework is just not at all coming from commercial music, period. It's just not about that. It has nothing to that because I've had to do what I've had to do. I've always felt like I have one foot sort of in that world and one foot out of that world. So I feel like, you know, I would never have survived in Nashville because it's completely all about commercial music. But I like the element of and the tradition of really great, soulful, deep commercial music. I don't know. It's a long winded answer, but the experience was was great. I loved it. I loved every minute. It was great. Were you uh, again to get more on the uh, the guttural musician side of things where were you tempted to uh, get a a green man uh variac looking uh you know tube preamp or was there any of his gear that that tempted you at all to uh to check out oddly enough not it's yeah yeah, it's like i'm pretty settled in how i uh approach the whole thing sonically yeah i mean um you know i definitely checked it out uh and uh he, I had one pedal that I like that I got that, oh God, my son is basically taking it. It's like, a, oh man, what is the name? Old Blood Noise. And I can't remember the name of it. I think it's the company, but it's sort of trying to imitate, remember the Fender oil can? Yes. Uh, yeah. Plays. yeah. 
which at the time, it's so funny, at the time, I, re, you know, I, I'm old enough that I've come up through every version of delay or reverb, right? And at the time, we all just thought like, well, this is God awful, yeah. right? <laughs> I got my echoplex. I was like, oh, thank God. Or, you know, a great, you know, my, I still have my original deluxe reverb. The reverb's amazing. Yeah, that, that box at the time was terrible. But now, you know, in the framework of weirdness and exotic sounds and atmosphere, this pedal kind of has a kind of quirky, weird thing to it. So I did, uh, I got, I definitely got that pedal. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in all of Rise stuff. Yeah. Wise, but, you know, I've got, this thing I do with the acoustic and the amp and stuff. And it's, it's, it, it, I'm satisfied with it. It's a good sound for me, particularly in the context of that band where I kind of a little bit, you know, acoustic guitar, a little bit electric guitar and sort of seems to work made it. I thought it was sonically, it was a good compliment to him. So there you go. Yeah. So of course, over this period of time when, you know, we've all been at home and, and probably absorbing more content than normal. What has been something that you've watched or heard that's inspired you or you were surprised at? Well, I went back and watched one of your interviews. Uh, who did I watch it with? It was... Uh, was it the Jimmy Johnson one? You mentioned the, yeah, the Swampers. Yeah, I just love that Jimmy Johnson. Well, you know, it's like, I just love those that, that generation, Reg. And, yeah. you know, we both share a love of Reggie and Jimmy Johnson. Like, yeah, you, you just think about the the career he had. It was just like ridiculous, you know. Yeah. And he's playing rhythm guitar in Land of a Thousand Dances. And I'm like, get the F out of here. Yeah. That's like the heaviest rhythm guitar part of all time, you know. And, and, but it's weird. I actually haven't been watching or listening to that much. I thought I'd like, oh, I'm going to read books and watch movies and stuff. But this is going to sound weird. I, I, we've been busy. I've been busy recording stuff. Okay. A lot of virtual stuff. Uh, you know, I've been working on my solo record now that I don't have an excuse. And like I just spent yesterday, uh, I cut a track of Sam Cooke's Change is Going to Come, and I sent it to uh, – Brandy Carlisle and Gary Clark Jr. And uh, they both sang the whole song, each one of them. And then I created a duet. I think I did a halfway decent job for a virtual show that Roseanne and I are sort of working on for Carnegie Hall. And I think it's going to be really cool. I mean, it's going to be a virtual show. I don't know how many people are going to see it. But we're sort of trying to wrap it around the moment of this idea of community and protest and um and whatever power music may have to address ideas like that and also address ideas of healing and anxiety and stuff. So we've got some interesting things. Rise got a thing in there and Elvis Costello. And I did a thing with Rose, uh, my buddy, Mark Cohn spoke to Liz Wright yesterday. I think she's going to do one. And then I've got this track with Brandy and Gary, which is pretty cool to hear the two of them sing this song. I mean, I love that song anyway, but, so I've been actually kind of weirdly busy, oddly busy. Hmm. That, yeah. that is interesting. Uh, what about being at, at home with your, uh, I, I guess, your is your son home with you? He has been home uh, and he just, he goes to school at University of Chicago. He just went back uh, less than a week ago. He was, uh, I think, tired of being with mommy and daddy. Uh, <laughs> he's, a big, he's a big, hefty, independent, full-fledged 21-year-old. Um, so he went back, although 
Something tells me he might be back because my son is really, really talented musician too. He spends, I get the studio during the day and after seven o'clock he's in here to like two in the morning. So, and he's been doing some pretty interesting things. Does, does he feel any of the weight of his parents or his lineage? You know, he's a, he doesn't articulate it, but I can't help but feel there's a weight there. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, you know, you've got kids and, yeah. you know, and the father and son thing. And, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it is, I think it is hard for him. He, he very, very much wants to be completely independent of us on every level musically. And what he's doing, I mean, I, I mean, there's a DNA aspect to it where I can hear, he and I love a lot of the same music. So, I mean, he loves I mean, he really loves Elliot Smith as his main man and loves Blake Mills. Like, Jake's got pretty good taste. Yeah. Uh, but he's really like, you know, he's internalized Simon and Garfunkel. And, you know, uh, you know, the Bridge Over Trouble Ward album is was a huge, is a huge record in this house, in my whole family. It's like one of my favorite records of all time. And, you know, he loves the Beatles. He loves the Beach Boys. So he has a lot of the same stuff that uh, that in him that we all love. So it comes out. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll, I'll go like, oh, that's a weird Brian Wilson thing you're doing there. And he's like, Oh yeah, it is. I said, yeah, I'll play him like some weird mid period beach boy thing where Brian is starting to do really weird stuff. And he's like, yeah, it is. So there you go. What about, uh, there was listening to an older Colvin record. Uh, I was reminded of, and I want to articulate this uh, the best way. It seemed like you had a kind of Celtic influence in your playing that kind of came out more in the 90s in your single yeah. note line playing. Yeah. yeah and yeah. like. Well, okay. Yeah. Why is that? I don't know. Somebody else pointed that out. Um, it, for sure, I think there's a couple of things where A, I love Celtic music. Uh, B, my grandmother was Irish, so I'm sure part of it's in, you know, in my DNA. Uh, uh, and at the time, uh, it it was up, it was front and center. Uh, both Colvin and I had a, a good feeling for Celtic music, and we were both really, really loved uh, those two Paul Brady records from the 70s. Are you hip to those? Yeah. Welcome Kind Stranger, and then the other one was a duo record with Andy Irvine, I think. I forget the name of the record. But there was a handful of tracks that had bazookies and sort of, you know, those kind of like, you know, you know, all that droning. So I loved all that stuff, and it was just, you know, it seemed at the time a little bit fresh, and it was a cool thing that maybe made us stand out a little bit, particularly on our first record. And I definitely used it quite a bit with the droning G string. Yes, <laughs> took full advantage of the open G string. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like, I, th I think the track I was—I mean, there was a number of tracks, but there was uh, "Climb on a Back That's Strong." That one had uh, both oh, yeah. in the intro and the solo on that had had some of those uh, elements in it. it. Did yeah yeah yeah. Although I didn't have a uh, yeah, I have to. Go, I haven't listened to that track in a long time. That record, that, that track was on. I didn't. At the end of the day, probably apart from that track, I didn't have a whole lot to do with that record. That right. Was yeah. 
but her first record had a bunch of Celtic-y things on it. Um, I remember even sort of pre-samplers wanting the sound of bagpipes at the fade of this song called Shotgun Down the Avalanche. So I had to go and get and find, I can't remember where I found it, but I found some record of, you know, the pipers on vinyl, right? This is even before CDs on vinyl. I brought it to the studio and we had to like record it and transfer it. And then we had to fly it in on the fly into the outro. And it's like, that. and then of course that wasn't good enough for me. So I probably said, well, let's flip the tape. Let's turn it around. So that was, uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was a big thing then, but like anything else, you know, it's like it was that was great then for a good solid ten years, and then you, it's like, I mean, it's still in what I'm doing. In fact, um, I just finished well a, a record I did with Sarah DeRose is about literally coming out this week. Yeah, yeah, and uh, she's phenomenal. We should probably talk about her. Yes, she's please. Really, it, was, it was a great experience. Really loved making the record. Just great human being and really smart, really talented. And I think we had a lot of simpatico. We had a lot of the same sensibilities. And so some of that thing you're talking about, that Celtic thing has definitely returned um, because she has a good feeling for it. Right. And yeah. she has some of the stuff we wrote some stuff together and she had some songs where a lot of that sort of made sense. Um, and so uh, I've brought some of that back. I got to, yeah, that's interesting. You should point that out. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that because I've been doing more of these kind of rootsy, bluesy, southerny. You know, it, working with William Bell and the Blind Boys, and even Roseanne's last few records have been sort of a little swampier and stuff. Right. But Sarah's record has it's kind of coming full circle a little bit. It's cool. I never thought about that. Yeah. So uh, Sarah, of course, is a very strong instrumentalist. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, was she playing more of the mandolin bazooki uh, acoustic guitar thing? We did. She, we did a lot of different things. She, um, I, honestly, I had to nudge her a little bit to be more of a player. She was, uh, you know, it's kind of incredible. You think about it. She's like 27, maybe 28. No, maybe she's 29. I can't remember. This is bad. But she's, this is her fifth album. She's been making records for over 10 years. Right. And, Right. So she's a vet already. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and I th I think she felt a little bit that she had sort of done a lot of that about her playing and the tradition of a lot of younger, you know, really incredible, great players. A lot of what I would call linear playing, which is I love too. Right. It's kind of coming from more of the bluegrass fiddle tune tradition. Right. Opposed to your snaky plane, which is, you know, coming more from the black music tradition or whatever. I mean, I, I like being right in the center of both those things. But anyway, I think she was ready to sort of not really make that the center of what she was saying. And um, so we worked a lot on songwriting and lyrics. And uh, But I encouraged her to play. And we, she played everything. She plays beautiful mandolin. And she has a really great sounding octave mandolin. And I even forced her... I put an electric pick. I have a great, I should, God, how can I show you the picture where I taped uh, a Tysco pickup into my, my bazooki that I had from, you know, steady on or whatever, just taped it on with gaffer's tape. So she's playing my bazooki through a fender amp cranked up. So we've, we tried all sorts of different things. Great, really fun experience. Really like the record. And I feel, honestly, I feel bad for her and a little bit for myself because I'm really proud of the record and it's a very, very odd time.
to be releasing a record. So yeah. The uh the kind of sound hole pickup thing is something that uh you've you know kind of been a champion of even as you know, utilizing that on bazooki and acoustic guitar as, as part of your, yeah. your, your sound that, you know, cause uh, we talked about it at some point, we talked about the fact that you, you utilize that mix of uh, sound hole pickup and, uh, and, you know, kind of transducer live. And, and I guess you do that in the studio also where you would record, you'd mic up and, and use a, a pickup also, or. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it doesn't seem that radical to me, but I guess I have, uh, you know, people seem to notice it. So, yeah, so in the studio, I never really use the transducer pickup. Right. That That's a compromise for a lot. Right. It works, I've, and I've made my piece with it. No, in the studio, quite often, um, I have a ton of sound hole, different sound hole pickups, vintage ones, not so vintage ones, you know, um, where if I'm, playing acoustic guitar, I'll mic the acoustic guitar as I normally would and try to get a good acoustic guitar sound, but I'll send a signal to an amp, generally in another room, and mic it, and then uh, blend it in in the track. It's, it's To me, it's a compelling sound. I like the sound. It retains sort of everything I like about acoustic guitar, but it can also give it a little more energy and interest and texture in a track that if you're using it right, feels emotional or compelling or, you know, can have some mystery to it or whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. I'm sure I did it on Sarah's record. I mean, I pretty much do it on every record I'm doing now. So what are some favorite sound hole pickups? Um, well, it's not sexy, but the one I use live is, uh, oh, man, I can never remember that. It's the active Fishman. There's a passive Fishman and there's an active one. Passive one, I don't care for at all. The active one. You know, I've A-B'd it to a lot of modern sound hole pickups. And for me, it sounds the best through an amp. Yeah. Like, if I was to use it the way I think it's intended, i.e. playing it direct, I probably wouldn't care for it at all. In fact, I know I don't care for it. But if I use it as sort of a gateway to sort of pretending I'm playing an electric guitar, it really works for me. Uh, but, you know, I have a, a bunch of DeArmonds. Uh, I have an old Bill Lawrence I have uh, I have a way of taking uh, you know gold foil Tysco and using that. So it really depends. I'll experiment, you know, but it's generally uh, an old Diarmin like that you would see in a Lightning Hopkins guitar, right? Because right. I always like that sound yeah. a lot, actually. Um, or uh, or the Fishman, you know, and generally through a blackface Fender, not too loud, but you know, moving a little air, generally with a little bit of tremolo, so it just gives it a little energy, so it's not just sitting there linearly. Yeah, and you either pan them or you tuck it underneath, or yeah, there's lots of creative things you can do. Yeah, works for me. Well, you still uh, are still using those big honking picks. <laughs> yep. Can't go back now, brother. <laughs> I don't know. They work. It yeah, I've tried to get most, it's funny, most cats don't like them, but man, to me, they, they get, it really works for me, yeah. I don't know. And, and that's, yeah. and that's, you're, you're using that open tuning with the, the, the low C and the low G, correct? Yeah.
Yeah. This guitar is interesting. It's like I've tried my best to never change the strings on it. So these strings at this point, you know, I don't know, probably four or five years old. Yeah. Um, some guitars just sound incredible to me that way with totally dead strings. I like them with new strings too, but this one, it has literally no extraneous sonic information. It's all fundamental note. And this actually I used almost exclusively on Sarah's most recent record. It's a... Uh, it's like 50s. I think it's late for like 49. Oh, wow. Yeah, J50. So um, pretty great guitar, like incredibly dried out and uh, very easy to play. So, you know, so for a little uh, a, a little guitar lesson in, the, in that uh, tuning, would you play the uh, the part what move the, the camera down and play like get out of this house just to, to show that part? Oh, geez, I'd have to remember. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I might be able to. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah, got it. Phew. <laughs> you know, man, it's like you work on them for a couple of days in the studio, like 25 years ago, and then it's like, okay, now I got to remember it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like I heard who's Joe Messina, the, was one of the Motown guitar players. Yes, the guy who played the telly the same interview when he started doing the funk brothers it was like now oh, we're gonna play you know what becomes of the broken or whatever and he's like <laughs> like what do you i played it for three hours one day 40 years ago now i have no idea what i did so. right uh all right so here's the tuning That's not the key of the tune. Uh, the tune actually has sort of an elusive tonal center, which I definitely dig. All right, let's see if I can remember. I think this is what I did. worked for that record because a lot of these voicings let me sort of create these uh, harmonic moods that I thought had a little mystery to it, right? Yeah. A little sense of resolution. So, ambiguity. Oh. Ambiguity. Yeah, I like ambiguity. I like musical ambiguity. Yeah. Long as it's smart. <laughs> and and where did that tuning come from? I get it like, this is just bullshit. <laughs> I like it if it's smart. Where did the tuning come from? You know, man, I don't, it, it didn't come from, uh, I don't know where it came from. I mean, it's not like any big radical thing I discovered. I mean, it's basically your G tuning or your A tuning. And I just was like, well, what if I tune down the low E string? Yeah. And then the revelation was, I mean, I guess I might as well go into this because I guess I get asked about this more than anything. The revelation was what you can do with the bottom three chords, three strings, yeah. right? Can you, was like, can you move the camera over just a touch so we can see your, yeah, yes. Now we can see your right. hand, yes. Uh, revelation is, is this kind of thing, for me anyway. So the sound of that low and widely voiced, you know, quite often 
in your tonic position, it's your root fifth third, and then you know any permutation of that kind of spread voicing, it's appealing to me, you know, and uh, particularly down low. What? So I don't know. It was just really appealing to me. So I dove in, and now at this point, it's like I'm well over 25 years into it. So I'm pretty fluid. I mean, I think that's the thing that happened was like, oh, well, now I can pretty much. In the beginning, it was like, whoa, navigate chromatic changes. Like, I can't, whoa, I can't even think about that. Right. right? But now I can. Now I've kind of figured it out a bit. So there you go. But it's part, it's part of your voice now, and it's part of your stamp. That And it, when, when you hear that, that type of playing. Whatever, yeah, 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 I don't know. Do I have a voice? Do I have a stamp? I don't know. No, I mean, I use it on record. I don't know what my, my stamp or voice is as a guitar player. When people think of me, I always assume they seem to just think of me as a record producer. But oh. I'm one of you guys. <laughs> you know, there's a, I just have to tell you that you know, not, not to uh, blow smoke at all or anything, but there was after I interviewed you for the True Tone Lounge, there were guys that I had asked that weren't willing to do it until after you had been on the show. And, oh, you know, like who? Uh, session guys here in town in Nashville. So I, I don't want to wow. name names, but, uh, uh, you know, they, you know, cause I don't want them, the, people to know that they were, <laughs> didn't, didn't. Well, I was into doing it because, uh, you know, I mean, you and I had a small little report at that point, right. which was, I thought he's a nice guy and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but I don't get at, it started me being having more of a thing as a guitar player. Like I never felt like anybody was aware of my guitar playing as much yeah. as like, oh, he makes these records or this, that, and the other. Yeah, no, there's there's a, there's a lot of people here. Uh, you know, I don't. I'm sure then the rest of the world too, but especially in Nashville, there are a lot of people that are very aware of your your uh, guitar playing. What have you? Well, very sweet. Yeah. What have you picked up now? Well, this is my, you know, the, my my thing I've been bragging about yes. for years. I have a Strat for two hundred dollars. And it's really friggin' good. Yeah. It, like, yeah, I mean, like, I have a complicated thing with strats, and I pick most of them up, and I'm like, God, I can't make music on this. Yeah. But in the last year or two years, I found two strats that I love, and I use them. I actually, honestly and truly, I've been using them quite a bit on this solo record I've been making. So, yeah, most of them get a little thin and spongy to me, but the, the both these are fat, and they both stay in tune, and... I like it. I like it a lot. They both. Yeah, they're sweet. I like them a lot. Do you on on the 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 three pickup telly that you had? You rewired it to where it had other pickup options. You would you would swap the leads on the on the the bridge pickup and the middle pickup. So that you would could still get both pickups on your main road telly, right? Okay, yeah. yeah. So that is, uh, you know, that really came from a certain degree of uh, ignorance, <laughs> uh, because I originally did that a very long time. That that wiring I did, I would say I I did that about 1979. You know, this idea of like, well, I like the Strat, but um, but I really love Telecaster, but that middle pickup, that Curtis Mayfield thing and the little, you know, I like the sound of that. And so oh, I should put one in my Telecaster. 
but I also really love the sound of the two outer pickups. Right. And I was like, well, am I going to do that? And I just was like, well, okay, if I wire it this way, it'll be, but the pickup switch is all out of kilter. So on mine, if the pickup switch, what, do, do you really want me to go down this? <laughs> is it, this is interesting to you guys? Well, I, I think part, just, I, I, mean, I, I think was more mostly go ahead. full pot now, but I, I never was comfortable with that. So I, yeah. I'm comfortable. I, I guess my question was, have you done that to the strats also that you have to get those outer two pickups? Somebody along, somebody along the way hit me to the blender pot. Okay. So that this is wired normally. And then if I, I never, you don't, I personally don't need two tone controls on a strat. So I just use this pot here as the blender so that if you're in either of the outer positions, it becomes these two pickups. Okay. Which oddly on a Strat, I don't, I would, I used to think I liked that sound, but um, I don't actually use it as much as you would think, as much as I do on a Telecaster. I love it on a Telecaster. Yeah. I don't know, the endless mystery and black hole of Strats and Tellies, man. It's like none of us are ever totally happy with what we have. It's always like, how can they be just a little bit better? Yeah. Or like that guy's. I wish mine sounded like that guy. How how many tellies do you have, John? Oh, Jesus. Come on, admit it. Uh, well, you know, I've been putting them together myself for the last ten, five, ten years. I don't know. So I've probably put together one, two, four. And then I probably have another four. So I probably have eight. I mean, I have my two original Telecasters still, a kind of yellow bond one and a red one. And then uh, uh, I have a brown one. So I have I had I've, I had uh, three Telecasters at some point by the end of the 80s, and I still have those, and I love those. Actually, the brown one is the one I use the most. It has a Strat neck. And then I bought a couple of custom shop Telecasters, and then I've put together a bunch of Telecasters. So not not too bad. No, you're not like your rock stars. Come on. <laughs> I'm just giving you a little grief. But okay, so you're you're uh you have to grab two guitars to run out of the house with. What are they gonna be? Oh man, I thought we always all we all play with that and idea. It's a, Jeez, it's a terrible dude. question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. It is a terrible question. Uh man, I don't I really don't know. I guess I'd have to Oh boy. I'd have to grab that uh, my original Telecaster uh, that I had on your show before, just because yeah. it's been with me the longest. And then the acoustic guitar, acoustic guitar thing. Oh, yeah, that's that's really tough. Yeah, I've got some good ones, man. I mean, I guess I'd have to probably. I have a J thirty five that I've had for twenty five years, uh, and it's just a wonderful guitar. It is beat up and dried out, and uh, but it is just world class recording guitar. It sounds gigantic, but it it doesn't have any of the complicated sort of woofiness of like a great D twenty eight. It but it has this incredible low end that microphones can capture, and it's usable in a track, and I really love it. Um, so I probably grabbed that, but that would be hard. It would be like choosing one of your kids. Like, yeah. You want to grab which one of your kids are you going to grab from the fire? It's like, no, what? Yeah. No way. Yeah. So there you go. Now, if 
you know, because I saw Cornell Dupree have to do this, I'm going to ask you, uh, list, you know, some of your own recordings that are your favorites, uh, that, you know, things that you've played on that you feel are the best examples that you're proud of. Uh, is this, is this another bad one? Yeah. <laughs> is it like I children mean, again? No, it's just, I don't know. It's like, uh, I'm never, I, I'm, I'm never truly happy. I mean, this is an insight into the, you know, my whatever, not the dark side of my soul, but sort of, I mean, I'm never truly happy with anything I ever do recording wise. And as I've gotten older, that's why I like performing so much more because I love the spontaneity of it. I love the, the reality that you exist in this moment of time and you give everything you have in this moment of time. And when that moment of time is over, it's over. The experience is over right. and it feels incredible to me and uplifting and the recording thing is complicated because it's you're sort of or i am you know unfortunately am i making good records do they have a sort of timeless quality and what does that mean does anybody care and so in some ways i'm never happy with anything i do <laughs> like i'll listen to anything and go oh why did i do that but having said that i mean there are some things i seem to have a little feeling for that i don't that I, where I go, well, that's as good as I could have done then, you know. So I don't know. Do you want me to just, just, list just, them? you know, a, a couple of things that you're, you know. Well, there's a song on Sarah's record. We'll see if it stands the test of time for me that I'm really proud of. Uh, it's a song we wrote together, and I'm, I am playing guitar in it, and I actually play a nice solo. Actually, one of the very few rye influenced guitar solos I think I've ever done on this song called Orange and Blue. But I'm basically playing piano. And uh, I played a little drums and I played upright bass. And that's pretty much the whole track, um, except for the guitar solo. But Sarah wrote in a deep, beautiful lyric. And the, the, the song and the track feel really good to me. It feels like, God, that's, we, we did a really good job. It felt unique and timeless at the same time. And so I'm proud of that. Hopefully, uh, if you ask me that in 10 years, I still will be. Yeah. Uh, you know, I like the record I did with William Bell. I feel pretty good about, you know, things about it. I wish I would have done slightly differently maybe, but I wish I would have turned the string sections up louder. But uh, uh, I, I'm proud of the record I did with William. I feel like it uh, was a thing that I was honored to do and uh, an important part of who I am and my love for that kind of music and to get to do it with somebody like William just feels like something uh, when I get to the end of my life, I'm going to be really happy I did. So I'm proud of that record, pretty much everything. I think there's a song on there that uh, I think as a song is a well-written, you know, I'm proud of the song too. It's called the three of me. It's the first song on the record and yeah. I just proud of that song. So, uh, I like that song. I don't know. There's a song or two on Roseanne's last record or on the river and the thread record that I think that we wrote really good songs. One's called night school and, you know, it has a touch of Kurt Vile in it or whatever. And, uh, not so guitar-y. Um, and there's a song I, on the album I did with Colvin that had the get out of this house and the album title is a few small repairs. Yeah called uh facts about jimmy and i've always liked that song i always thought that that you know a lot of these aren't about guitar though right, right. they're more about the gestalt of 
songwriting, you know, they're all songs I wrote and or co-wrote and, uh, and just the feel of the recording and the arrangement and the playing, it, they feel satisfying to me. So there you go. So there are a few, there are a few moments, not that many, but a few. Well, those are great. And the, and the William Bell album that, you know, that got a Grammy and so did the Colvin record. So you, you got some, yeah, yeah, yeah. some no, nice man. accolades there. So. Yeah, nobody, nobody buys them, but we get the Grammys. No, I'd, I'm not complaining, by the way. <laughs> hey, uh, so what were Cornell's favorite records? That would be interesting. Oh, Cornell mentioned the uh, the uh, oh the the live thing that he did with uh, Donny Hathaway, the Donny Hathaway live. He mentioned that. Yeah. He mentioned yeah. the uh, Esther uh, from a uh, from a whisper to a screen. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, oh golly. See now, now you know. Of course, I'm trying to remember what Cornell Dupree right. said, but yeah, it was just uh, well. Yeah. Uh, two things about Cornell. Um, uh, you know, I've had a lot. I've had pretty diverse influences on me. Yeah. You know, it's like, like you know, we're talking about Paul Brady and Rye and certain, as you know, Burton and Reggie and and Cor And there were two guitar players in New York when I first really started approaching trying to be a professional player who I admired greatly. One was Cornell Dupree. And this was even before stuff existed where you could actually go see him in this club, McKell's very small club. And me and my buddies would all go see him. And, you know, it was so exciting to hear him live and just, you know, that Telecaster plugged right into a Fender amp, no pedals, no anything before phase shifters or any of that nonsense. And, and the grooves were just devastating, and it opened up the world of how you play guitar to create a groove, which was huge for me. And the other was somebody who actually ended up becoming a friend of mine, Hugh McCracken, who was, I always thought of you as sort of the New York version of Reggie in some wow. ways, which is super eclectic, um, always perfect, minimal part, um, and always fit in there was always just something elegant and perfect about what Yui did he took forever to get there but and that was another thing I noticed because I did a few dates with him where it's like I could see it took he had to take his time to find his little bits but it was worth it because the bits were good you know uh, but you, and you also you think about what a guy like Yui did uh, he was a little he had a little bit more of an eclectic approach than Cornell who always sounded like Cornell but yeah. Yui played rhythm guitar on The Thrill Is Gone, which if you haven't gone back and listened to it, listen to just the rhythm guitar. It's some greasy greatness, it really is. He played acoustic guitar on Brown Eyed Girl, so the strumming is Yui. He played, uh, you know, Hey 19, I mean, which to me is like just a spectacular minimalist guitar part. Plays brilliant R&B, you know, Cornell Southern style rhythm guitar and Aretha's Till You Come Back to Me. Uh, man, it's kind of endless. He plays on Double Fantasy. He played on, I don't know if you ever listened to the Ram, which is my, probably my favorite solo McCartney record. And that track, Too Many People, McCracken's guitar part is so simple, but so great. And then those sliding sixth on Uncle Albert. I mean, Yui was a really inspiring guy to me. He doesn't get talked about enough. He really doesn't. Well, well, and sadly, he's no longer with us. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you, uh, because I was going to ask for you to, to list off some some great tracks, and you just you just did for you know because I hope that people will uh, will take the time to 
to listen to uh, and find out more about Hugh McCracken. And, uh, you know, yeah, he, he really was some and funny, driest, funniest. <laughs> he was really funny and a sweet soul, sweet, open soul. Yeah, yeah, really good guy. Yeah, a lot like Reg. I mean, he was. I mean, Reggie was so sweet yeah. and so generous and, uh, 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 you know, and just that ability to get in there and sort of find the perfect little bit that just will shine in the second verse when you needed something to shine. And, like, players like that, as much as any sort of – I mean, you know, guitar players tend to gravitate toward the big players or the big statements or the, you know – but, you know, those guys where you realize we're in the second verse and you need a little something and it can't just sit linear in the track. It's got to like come out, but it's got to also make the singer sound good and make you feel like we're moving to the next section and we're on a journey. Like those little bits had a massive when I started making records and before, even before I started making records. Those are the guitar players that really I internalize. Like, how do you do it? How do you come up with that perfect little two or three note thing that just slides in and just moves the thing along? It doesn't get in the way, but you kind of wait for it the next time you hear the track, you know? So I love that. I love that stuff. Yeah. You, you know, I didn't, you know, of course I, I interviewed, you know, Reggie and, and it's just funny in how much a person's spirit or their attitude or their personality comes out in their playing. And, and just how, you know, Reggie was such a kind person and, and served others and just almost was kind to a fault at times. And, uh, and, and that really came out in, in, and he showed that kindness also, also to every track he played on. So. Yeah, man. Well, you're killing me. Yeah. It's like, I wish I could have spent more time with him. Um, uh, I, every, time I was ever around him, I just loved it. You know, I loved his spirit was infectious. It was great. I felt the same way about McCracken. He was really a great yeah. guy. Cornell, I never got to know that that scene wasn't quite as open or inviting, you know, but, uh, yeah. well, uh, of course you've, uh, right now, you know, of course you're, you're in New York city and, uh, and, and it's a, and it's a strange time. Uh, how, how do you feel right now about everything that's going on? Oh man, I don't know if I can sum it up. I mean, I'm a pretty stoic guy, but I have to say the last week, particularly here because of the violence has been, it's been unnerving. I mean, I think that we will, it'll get straightened out and, you know, we'll start to gravitate towards some sense of normalcy, what that is. But I don't know, Zach, it's, uh, it's a really weird time. It's, uh, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, I've been in the beginning of the pandemic, there was, I don't want to say there was a romance to it, but I could tell a lot of people, a lot of our friends, you know, these are, I want to choose my words right. And I'm not, but there was a kind of novelty to it where you were aware of the gravity of the situation and the anxiety and fear you had, particularly in a place like New York, but you also, particularly musicians who are just funny human beings anyway, let's face it. I mean, I think musicians are some of the funniest people I know. You have to have a sense of humor to friggin' make it as a musician. If you don't, you're doomed. Yes. If you can't laugh and like see the absurdity in endless situations that you have to deal with as a player, or any, anything, engineer, I don't care what, probably anything but a label executive. They don't need a, they don't need a sense of humor. And very, very few of them have it. Yes. 
um, uh, you had musicians, you know, musicians where uh, there was a kind of, I want, I don't see the right word. I was like, okay, I'm going to work on my solo record. And it felt right. And I got some traction on it. But I have to say, particularly in light of the events of the last week or 10 days or whatever it's been, I haven't worked on it because it, I don't want to say it feels frivolous, but it, it's something has, has shifted in me. Now, I know myself well enough to know that it'll probably come back where I'll probably come back to it and go, hey, this is it. This is what all I have, you know. Maybe it is frivolous, but this is what, you know, this is what it is. This is who I am, and I'll come back to it. But it has been slightly odd, i got to tell you. I think I think it's the, the fact that sometimes what you're creating can sometimes seem so insignificant compared to what's going on. And yeah. that, that feeling, yeah. that feeling, yeah. I mean, working on this, the Sam Cooke track with Brandy and Gary Clark felt last night in particular, I mixed it last night. I poured myself a little amber fluid and I was like, well, you know, this is real. Yes. I mean, this is real as anything. And it's, I don't know who it's going to affect or what it's going to change or, but if a small number of people get the feeling from it that I'm getting sitting here, there's at least going to be some sort of healing quality to it for somebody's soul, even if it's for a short period of time. And if that's the best I got right now, if that's the best we can do or anybody can do, then that's the best we can do. Yeah. It's like, um, I don't know. But we'll see, brother. We'll see. I don't know. I mean, everywhere. I hope I hope uh, I hope we come out of this in. uh with some more light and some better choices. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I hope you will, you know, when, when the time is right, I hope you will continue on your, on your solo record. Cause there's so many of us that have been enjoying, you know, following you on Instagram and, and seeing the, uh, the playing clips. Cause they are, they're a lot yeah. of fun. Uh, you know, even, you know, sometimes when, uh, you, you were playing a, a clip on, on, uh, on the telly and you were doing some Cornell Dupree, you know, type uh, rhythm where you were playing, you know, rhythm with your thumb and hitting uh, some sixth and, uh, and some little double stops uh, that were just the feel on it was really nice. And I hope that you will continue to do that. And I hope that you will finish this solo record at some point. Cause there, there's a, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that would like to hear it. So I hope you, well, man, thank you. I, I mean, I appreciate that. That's that'll mo motivate me as much as anything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the Instagram thing is interesting that I'm doing it at all is kind of amazing. And that, uh, I mean, it's easy. Yeah. <laughs> Just pick up a guitar and do 60 seconds of music yeah. and I don't actually have to make the record of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's that thing I'm saying. I love the first hour of the creative act of writing or recording or coming up with a part like uh, it's uh, making the record and now having to play all the damn instruments, which I'm like, oh, my God, it's a lot of work. So. <laughs> But no, I'm glad you like it. I, I, I like it. I like watching other people's bits. Like Rye has recently done, he did this amazing one. I think it's called Are You Human? Uh, if you haven't seen it, have you? are you following yes, Rye on Instagram? Absolutely. And that bit, Are You Human? I just was like, I thought, well, this is some new, different, amazing stuff. And so, yeah, the Instagram thing is interesting. I mean, it's fun. It's It's easy for me. It's you know, I get to play some guitar and, you know, bust out all these little weird influences I have. And if 20 people like it, I guess it's cool. I don't know. Well, please, well, don't please know. keep it up. <laughs> all right. I really appreciate it. 
All right, so you stay safe and sound. Yes. And um, I mean, I know what's going on down there because, you know, my, my stepdaughter and my grandson and, and, uh, and my buddies all down there. And it sounds like you guys are starting to open up a little bit, as I understand yeah. it. I, yeah, we're st- we're st- another thing I did was I wrote a song with Rodney Crow like a few weeks ago. We wrote it virtually. He actually went in to a studio. Yes. <laughs> And distanced and cut it. He uh, he played acoustic guitar and he sang. Uh, he didn't do it to a click or anything. And he sent me the files and then I cut a track around it, sent it back to him, and it's great. I really like it. Like, so maybe this is what we're going to be doing. I don't know. I'd rather have all been there with a bunch of cats in the studio, but it worked out pretty good. But 